This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, federal agencies are hoping to catch the attention of tech workers as large-scale layoffs rock the job market and how they're developing a tech to government employment pipeline. Then, the State Department says Russia isn't allowing American inspectors into nuclear weapons facilities. It's a violation of the START Treaty, the impact this could have on nuclear stability. And the Department of Justice recently announced it's suing Google again. The move is part of a larger effort by the current administration to break up what it sees as monopolies. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. Tech companies are letting go of tens of thousands of employees, but the federal government is hiring for many of those roles. The Office of Personnel Management hosted a tech job fair as part of broader efforts to attract new talent. Kim Holden is a Deputy Associate Director at OPM. Kim, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So, OPM is doing a rebrand uh, of the government. Why is that necessary? What's wrong with your brand? I don't think that there's anything wrong with our brand. What we need to do is get more information out there about public service and the importance of public service because we do need more workers. Every industry is, is, is hurting for talent and the federal government is also hurting for talent. But we also want to make the public aware that just like any other industry, the federal government is has stakes in, in public health, banking, energy, um, commerce, transportation, uh, defense, and that there are opportunities for the general for the federal for the public in federal service. But making sure that people understand the impact of the mission is what's important, and that's what the role that we want people to play. So, uh, why is the government facing a tech shortage in the in the first place? That, that talent shortage, how did, you, how did we get into this situation? Well, it's always been difficult for the federal government to find good tech talent and talent that would, that would remain for, you know, for a few years. Uh, over the last three years, we've noticed that there were 2,400 uh, tech opportunities advertised uh, across different agencies that resulted in no selection. And so we figure that it's actually time for us to, to build up the information about the tech industry, uh, what the jobs that we have to offer, um, and to see if we can that we can take advantage of some of that talent. So, about how many positions are you looking to fill in the civilian agencies? In the civilian agencies, I would say it's, it's thousands of positions at this point. So, tell us about this recent virtual job fair. How did it go? Oh, this was a fabulous opportunity. We had a great partnership with Tech Talent Project and the Volcker Alliance, uh, along with OPM. And we, you know, hearing about the tech layoffs, uh, they decided to do an opportunity fair, not necessarily a job fair, but an opportunity fair to alert persons who are in the tech industry of the opportunities in public service. Um, we had it was held on January the 18th all virtual. We did have sessions with in, an introductory fireside chat with Kieran Ahuja, who's our Director of Office of Personnel Management, along with uh, Claire Montanaro, who is our federal CIO, and uh, Minna Sang, who is the Director for U.S. Digital Services. Um, and it was, it was a fabulous opportunity for the participants to interact. Um, we had over 1,800 participants. We had over 3,800 conversations. Um, but it was a wonderful partnership. And 
a good amount, actually about 73% of the persons felt like it was a useful uh, session because it allowed them to clearly hear from over the, the over 50 employers of the types of roles that they're looking for, whether it was cybersecurity, enterprise architecture, um, the vast majority to include recruitment. Uh, we have a lot of agencies that are looking for people to help recruit tech talent, but they need to have that background and where to find the talent. But it's something that um, came together very nicely and we're looking forward to continuing the partnership with Tech Talent Project. And, and did you get any feedback on how it went from the participants? Oh, the participants, like I said, 73% felt that it was very useful. Mm -hmm. uh, they were really pleased with the number of employers and the number of roles that actually fit into you know, their experience. And so they could see themselves in a lot of these roles. Uh, the managers had, uh, like I said, we had over 38 individual conversations between the agencies and the participants. Um, and just, it was just amazing to watch the chatter over the virtual event to see how many connections were made and hopefully these, these connections will lead to future, future employment for a lot of these folks. You know, a common complaint mm -hmm. is that working, trying to apply and getting hired by the government just takes too long. And, you know, it's really quick in the private sector, right? If they like you, they interview you, and, and that's it. You start in, in a week, two weeks. Mm -hmm. So what are you doing to streamline the process, to simplify the process of working for the government? So for this particular event, we do have several hiring flexibilities that lend themselves to streamline the hiring process. Uh, agencies have the ability to use some of their direct hire authority to hire IT. We have some government-wide uh, hiring authority, direct hire authority for STEM jobs that include a lot of the tech positions like engineering. Um, and so those will help agencies to, to, expedite, uh, to expedite their hiring. And have you, has that worked? Can you point to any progress that you've made? Uh, progress overall, we can, we can point to progress that has been made. Um, we have, um, and we also have a new hiring authority, the 10-year term uh, for STEM opportunities, which, uh, which is also a somewhat of an expedited hiring authority, but it allows agencies to hire their STEM and their tech talent for up to 10 years. But we do have some examples of agencies that have been able to make some significant strides, but the one challenge that the federal government has is our pay structure. And we cannot compete with the private sector with regard to pay. We have some flexibilities, um, but the one thing that is a win for the, federal, for the federal government is our mission, our benefits, and our work-life balance. And are, is there plans to have another job fair? Is there anything planned so far for, for doing something like that again? So nothing concretely planned, but it, we have been having conversations with Tech Talent Project to expand this beyond the opportunity fair to make it a hiring fair. Um, so that way it's, you know, it's real, it's not to say that the opportunities presented weren't real, they are real, but actual have, ha, actually have some real talent hired during that, during that fair. Okay, well we'll check in with you again and yes. see how things are going. Yes, we're really excited and, and looking forward to that opportunity. All right, thanks Kim for being on the program. Nice to talk to you. Thank you, nice talking to you as well. Up next, Russia is accused of violating its only nuclear arms control treaty with the U.S. How we got here and what happens next. We'll be right back.
The State Department says Russia is violating an international nuclear treaty by not allowing inspections of its nuclear facilities. Lynn Rustin is vice president of the Global Nuclear Policy Program at the Nuclear Threat Initiative. Lynn, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Mimi. So how significant is it um, that Russia is refusing to let American inspectors in? Well, this is really very significant because it's um, tearing at the fabric of the treaty, which has been enforced since 2011. It's been operating smoothly. Um, and now that the pandemic is under control, it's time to get inspectors back on the ground there and here so that we can verify that the Russians are doing what they're supposed to do under the treaty. So let's talk about that treaty. This is the New START Treaty. Give us an idea of what the treaty calls for and how long it lasts. Sure. So first of all, just to remind people, the United States and Russia have 90% of the nuclear weapons in the entire world. And so they really have a responsibility to manage their nuclear stockpiles responsibly. Part of that is an agreement, this agreement, which limits the number that they can have and permits um, an ability of the, of the other party to verify that they're complying with the treaty. This treaty was, uh, came into force in 2011 and it will expire in 2026. So it's a 15 year span agreement at this point. And um, there has been a check on Russia and uh, America's nuclear capabilities all the way going back to 1972. So it didn't start with this treaty. It did not start with this treaty, and that's such an important point because even at, during the Cold War when tensions were as bad as they are now, when there were proxy wars going on in different regions around the world between the United States and the Soviet Union, we managed to insulate this part of the relationship to manage the nuclear stockpiles um, because both countries have an existential interest in doing that. We don't want to blow up the world with nuclear weapons. Speaking of blowing up the world, <laughs> I mean, what's the worst case scenario here? I mean, could this get out of control? Well, I mean, it can get out of control in terms of it's the unraveling of the security architecture that really um, puts guardrails around the competition between the United States and Russia uh, in the nuclear arena. And many other treaties have already fallen by the, the wayside. And so it's very concerning that this agreement now is no longer apparently insulated from the tensions in the relationship over Ukraine and it's becoming a pawn in that in, in that conflict. It's dangerous. It's dangerous for us, it's dangerous for Russia, and it's dangerous for the world. And they're even refusing to talk about their non-compliance, so they won't even come and, and discuss it. Yeah, and that's a big problem because what, what this really is about is um, under the treaty, both countries can conduct 18 inspections a year in each other's country, which is pretty amazing to have, you know, United States inspectors literally land at a, at a Russian base and inspect missiles and missile silos and that kind of thing, and vice versa. That was all going smoothly even after Russia um, invaded Crimea in 2014. It still was going on quietly under the radar in a very businesslike fashion. Um, and then the pandemic hit and both countries just mutually agreed that they would stop conducting the inspections. But now that the pandemic is under control, it's time to talk with each other about, okay, what are the procedures, what are the, what are the COVID protocols that we need to follow? And there are some details to work out. But the Russians, although they initially apparently began that conversation with us, they have now stopped it because they're not prepared to resume. Is it... Um is there anything that the State Department can be doing, in your opinion, that they're not doing 
to get Russia back to the table and into compliance? I think they're, they're working very hard at exactly that, trying to make the argument that, look, this is not a favor to, to the United States. This is in your mutual interest. You're also foregoing the opportunity to inspect here. I think they're also working with um, countries around the world who have an interest, and this isn't just our allies, who maybe Russia isn't as concerned about, but countries like China. Um, countries like I, I did want to ask you about China specifically. Okay. Do they have enough um, influence on Russia to pressure them to come back? And is that in their best interest? Well, I think they do have influence. Whether they'll use it in this case remains to be seen. Um, you might have noticed that Chinese President Xi did speak out when President Putin at one point was rattling the nuclear saber, making these veiled threats about nuclear use in Ukraine. And he made it very clear publicly, and I'm sure privately, that that was a line Russia shouldn't cross. So I would hope that China is also going to use its influence to encourage Russia to get back to the, to the negotiating table with the United States. And you mentioned India, which is a nuclear power. Well, they're a, an unrecognized nuclear power. Um, but there's also a whole group of countries that don't have nuclear weapons that are really trying to hold the feet to the fire of the countries that do have nuclear weapons because they have an obligation to continue to limit and reduce nuclear weapons. So that's also a set of countries that Russia is trying to court and cares about that can't be happy about this. Is it likely, Lynn, that anything happens while there's hostilities going on in Ukraine? It's very hard to predict right now. I think to the extent that President Putin is trying to use this as leverage, I think he won't, it won't work because the United States really wants to conduct inspections and is open to the Russia inspecting, but I don't think we're going to give them anything else for it. So I think the question is whether they'll, at what point Russia will decide and it's in its own interest to keep this treaty from unraveling. And if I might add, it is important to say that Russia is complying with the central limits of the treaty. So right now, no one's saying that they're trying to break out of the treaty numerically. But over time, our ability to confirm that they're not will erode if we can't get boots on the ground. All right, Lynn, thanks so much for being on the program. Thanks for having me. Coming next, the DOJ is cracking down on tech companies it says have too much power. We discuss the administration's stepped up antitrust efforts. In 2021, President Biden issued an executive order to step up antitrust enforcement. Recently, a big part of that effort includes targeting tech companies. Diana Moss is the president of the American Antitrust Institute. Diana, welcome to the program. Good morning. Good to be with you. So why has the current administration turns it, turned its attention to big tech companies for antitrust enforcement? Absolutely. Well, you know, we have uh, some very large tech platforms in our economy now. Uh, they have grown very, very fast over the last 25 years, uh, mostly through acquisition, uh, acquiring smaller rivals to build out platforms and to build out uh, their cloud technology and to build out their ecosystems. And for a lot of really interesting economic reasons, the platforms have grown very strong and very dominant. And uh, that poses concerns for smaller rivals trying to compete on the platform. And so the Biden administration made this a priority very early on as part of a bigger uh, push to strengthen competition enforcement and create better competition policy. 
in the U.S., mostly for the benefit of consumers and workers and small businesses. But opponents of those efforts say that it stifles innovation. So how do you respond to that? Well, that's really the, the, the kernel of the debate. Uh, in other words, should the tech companies be able to acquire whoever they want so that they can uh, uh, ostensibly provide better products and services and more innovation? Should the small companies uh, that are startups, often venture capital-backed, uh, be able to choose whether they're acquired or whether they stay independent and continue to grow? From the antitrust perspective, though, um, that doesn't really matter. What matters is whether a company is acquiring its way to dominance and is using its monopoly power to maintain its, its dominant position or to even leverage it into other parts of these digital ecosystems. That's what antitrust cares about. It's about the consumer. And obviously the big tech companies are going to not like the increased attention or regulation. So how have they been responding? Well, I think it's been an all-out effort to, uh, you know, to dispel concerns about the, the market power of big tech. The, the selling point is really that the techs are providing lots of innovation and new products and services and connectivity for consumers. Um, so yeah, we've had a, an all-out effort, lobbying effort by, by big tech. And um, you know that that takes a heavy lift to respond to that. And so we've had some legislative proposals in Congress by Senators Blumenthal and Klobuchar. Um, the DOJ has brought cases. The FTC has brought cases against big tech. We even see private antitrust cases against big tech. So there's a mounting effort here to push back against uh, the market power problems that are now widely perceived to be um, a problem, not only from, a, from an economic standpoint, but a social standpoint and also a political standpoint. And recently, the Department of Justice filed a lawsuit against Alphabet's Google. What's the main issue there? So the main issue there is um, Google's alleged dominance in, um, uh, in advertising. They have an ad stack where they bring together publishers and advertisers, and uh, they've created quite uh, quite a market presence in the ad tech stack. And the concern there is that Google has made acquisitions and engaged in practices that have really allowed it to, to uh, maintain its dominance. So that is um, another case in a, what is a growing series of cases that the government is filing um, uh, against the big tech companies. And that includes both the, uh, the federal enforcers, but, but also state enforcers as well. And you recently testified at the congressional hearing on Ticketmaster, which the DOJ says controls 70% of the marketing for of the market for ticketing and, and live events. How had that been allowed in the first place, Diana? Our organization did did uh, testify at the hearing. Well, that merger uh, happened in 2010. It brought together Live Nation with concert promotion and venue management with Ticketmaster. Uh, in, in primary ticketing uh, with about an, an 80% market share. And so what we have now is this enormous company with a wingspan that covers everything from artist management all the way down to ticketing. And when you have a company with massive market shares and concert promotion and ticketing and, and exclusive contracts with venues, there are very strong incentives for Live Nation Ticketmaster uh, to squeeze out smaller rivals and to steer all artists and all consumers to their own uh, their own system. And that's become an enormous problem. There's no choice for artists in terms of who they contract with. There's no choice for consumers in terms of where they buy their tickets. And we now even see these problems 
the, this type of what we call exclusionary conduct extending to the resale market where Ticketmaster is making it more difficult for resellers to operate and to uh, increase competition. So it's a it's an example of both an an, an old, you know, an, an old-fashioned monopoly like a standard oil, but it's also a, a modern monopoly because Ticketmaster is now a digital platform. You know, we've talked about the DOJ going after monopolies, but the FTC enforces antitrust regulations. So explain their role. So um, we have two agencies at the federal level, the US Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, the Federal Trade Commission is an independent commission. It has a different set of authorities than the DOJ, which is really uh, the law enforcement agency. And so they work differently, but in a very important complementary way. It's very important to have two different agencies um, uh, enforcing the U.S. antitrust laws. For, for example, the FTC has its own statute, the Federal uh, Trade Commission Act, that it can enforce. And of course, both agencies enforce both uh, the monopolization statutes, that's the Sherman Act, and also the merger statute, that's the Clayton Act. So um, they tend to specialize in different industries. Uh, they have slightly different powers, but the important thing is that having these two very important prongs of federal enforcement um, really strengthens our system. All right, uh, well, we're out of time. Diana, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And listen to our Government Matters podcast, available on all major listening platforms. You can also find every podcast episode on our website at govmatters.tv slash podcast. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers 
as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.